Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community. Like Andy was saying, small groups are a great way to do that. And, and as well, like he was saying, if you're new to the church, you're figuring out if this is a spot for you, come to Vision Night. It's one of the best ways to figure out what our church is really all about, what it looks like to be a part of it. And so we want to encourage you, come check that out. So also love to invite you into our fall sermon series. Uh, we're working our way through uh, two books in the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, and two letters written by the Apostle Paul. But if, if you've been gone or you're just joining us for the first time, it's, it's important to understand that there's this recurring theme that keeps coming up in Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Almost in every single chapter, it's, it's brought up, it's referred to, it's mentioned. And, and the theme is, is Jesus's second coming. This day Jesus promised when he would return to earth in person to eradicate all evil set all things right, usher in his good kingly rule and reign forever. And, and what we've seen already is that Paul's not writing these letters to kind of just like give them a bunch of factoids about that future day or to just like show off his end times trivia knowledge or something like that. But instead what he's trying to do is he's trying to help Christians to understand how the confidence and the hope that we can approach Jesus' future return with is meant to have a profoundly transformative effect in our everyday lives. See, in other words, the, the central theme of Paul's writing to the Thessalonians is about how faith in Jesus' return is meant to produce a sanctifying hope in us. The kind of hope for the future that doesn't just change the way that we die one day, but that instead changes the way that we live every day. And while the whole book is full of references to the reality and the implication of Jesus' return for our everyday lives, uh, we saw last week in chapter 4 and 5 how Paul kind of climaxes the book and just like hits the nail straight on the head in those verses. And he highlights how, how faith in Jesus' death and resurrection are the thing that enables us to be filled with this eager anticipation for his return. And it allows us to grieve with hope in the face of death because we know that, that Jesus' resurrection wasn't just some past event in his story, but is in fact a pattern for all whose faith is in him. And, and we're able to live with this kind of purity and holiness until we meet him in our lives, not because we're afraid of judgment, but because we know that his death has already paid the penalty for our sin, that he's made us ready to meet with him, and that he set us free to live out our new identity as citizens of his imminent and eternal kingdom. And what we're going to see this week as we continue to study is that Paul's going to keep fleshing out the implications of that hope in our lives. He's going to keep fleshing out the, the sanctifying effect that hope in Jesus' return is meant to have in our lives. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be studying the last kind of 17 or so verses of chapter 5. We've been barreling our way through the books, but we're going to slow down a little bit in this last section because there's like 17-something commands that Paul gives in these last couple of verses that... that uh, they are all about fleshing out that idea of how Jesus' return should impact the way that we live. And so uh, we're going to slow down a little bit and take a look, closer look at some of the, what he says in this last section. But, but this morning what we're going to see is that his words focus on uh, the sanctifying effect that Jesus' return should have on the way that we live in relationship with fellow Christians. And 
As we study, what I want to show you this morning is that, that as members of God's family, our relationships with one another are meant to be increasingly characterized by a sacrificial love and a patient peacemaking. Our relationships with one another are meant to be characterized by a sacrificial love and a patient peacemaking. You see, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to have this kind of countercultural community that's characterized by actively, intentionally prioritizing the seeking of one another's good, just as Jesus did for us. And the reality is, is that that's not easy because family rarely is, right? but it's absolutely worth it. And so I can't wait to show you that this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll dive into God's word. Look for the sanctifying effect that hope in Jesus' return is meant to have. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you. And we're so grateful for your word this morning that we might get to gather and study it, that it, by doing so we might know you and we might know your heart for us as your people. And and so we just come together, God, just grateful that you've made us and brought us into your family, and we pray that you might be empowering us this morning to see the truth about uh, the way you've called us to live as your family, and that you might be empowering us to actually do it, not just to know it. And so God, I don't have any ability to make that happen, but you do. And so God, for your glory, for our good, might you enable us to see and to live out our calling as your family in this world. And so uh, we need you for all that, God, and we pray that you'd meet us in our need this morning. Amen. All right, well, like I said, uh, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we're going to be in a little bit in chapter 5, but we're also, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at chapter 4 and I said, there's a couple of verses we're skipping over this morning and we'll come back to. This morning is the morning. We're coming back to a couple of verses in chapter 4. So we'll start there in, in chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, and continue on in chapter 5, verse 12 through 15. It reads this way. Now about your love for one another, Paul writes, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia, and yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Chapter 5 continues, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work and live in peace with each other. We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Well, there's a lot of family language in our passage this morning. And what we've seen throughout the letters is that there's a lot of family language Paul uses throughout the, the letters. He repeatedly refers to them as brothers and sisters three times in these verses, more than 20 times in these two short letters as a whole. In chapter 2, we saw how he used this imagery of an innocent child, of a tender mother, and of an encouraging father to describe the way that he'd lived and ministered among them. And later on in chapter 2, he recounted how when he was forcefully separated from them initially, how he, he compares that to like being a, a child who's been orphaned from his family. Last week in chapter 5, he refers to Christians as children of light. And here in verse 10, he calls them the family of God. You see, one of the most repeated metaphors that the Bible uses to describe people who have been brought into a saving relationship with God is that we are his family. 
that he is our adoptive father, that our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are our brothers and sisters. It's so important that you see that because I think so many Christians tend to view the church or tend to view their relationships with other believers as just like spiritual friendship, right? But the Bible doesn't use the language of friendship to describe our relationship with one another. It uses the language of family. See, friends are people you pick based on people you like, people that like you, things you hold in common. Family you don't pick, right? Family you get to be a part of. You see, and that's the way God talks about it, that we're brought into his family. It's not this choice thing. It's not a preference thing. It's about a reality of an identity. We've been brought into his family. What becomes really clear as you read the Bible is that God's not only concerned with the way his kids, his family, live as individuals or just live in relationship to the world. He absolutely cares about that stuff. But what you see as you read is that he cares a ton about how we relate to and live amongst one another. See, the relational culture of God's family is a really big deal to him. It's a really big deal. It comes up in almost every single book in the Bible, the way that Christians are to relate to one another. And we don't have time this morning to do the deep dive on all the reasons why that is the case. But suffice it to say, one of the primary reasons is that as his children, as members of his family, we represent him. And how we relate to one another, it tells a story to a watching world about what our father and what his family is really like. And the story that we tell, why we, the way we relate to one another, it's either tells the truth or it tells a lie. And it's so important that our world sees the truth about who God is and about what his family is like. Because from the very moment that sin entered into the world, the world has been filled with broken families. One of the ways that God is bringing about his redeeming, renewing work in the world is as his people live as his family showing the world about their heavenly father and the life-giving goodness of belonging to his family, the family they were made to be a part of. What we see is that in order to live out that way, in order to, in order to, to accomplish that purpose, that we've got to live in a way that is distinct, a way that's different from the families and communities of the world. We've got to live in a new way, a, a sanctified kind of way. And in our passage this morning, we see Paul highlighting two qualities that should increasingly characterize the relational culture of God's sanctified family. Two qualities that should shape the way that we relate to one another and the culture of our, the, the, the family of God. And the first is this, is that it should be increasingly characterized by a sacrificial love for one another. In chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, again, Paul writes it this way. Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you'll know that uh, in English, we just have one word for love. We use the same word to talk about the way that we feel about pizza and our spouses, right? There's one love, that's all we got, right? But in, in, the, in the Greek, which is the original language that most of the New Testament is written in, there's a bunch of 
words for love, more specific words that talk about different types of love. There's storge, which refers to the kind of love and affection between family members, like a parent for their, for their kids. There's eros, which refers to a romantic love between like a husband and a, and a wife, a spouse. There's phileo, which refers to friendship and camaraderie, right? It's, it's where the city of Philadelphia gets its name, right? The city of brotherly love, camaraderie. Right? But over and above all these types of loves is a type of love the Greeks referred to as agape. It's the highest, purest kind of love. It refers to a kind of love that's characterized by a selfless devotion and sacrifice and service of others. It's, it's a kind of love that's not based on, on perceived worthiness. It's not based on reciprocal benefit. Instead, it's rooted in just the intrinsic value that someone has. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes the, the Corinthians, he describes probably the best description of what we have, what this kind of love looks like. He, he says it this way. He says, this kind of love, this agape love, it's patient, it's kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs, it doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth, it always protects and trusts and hopes and perseveres. He says, this kind of love is a love that doesn't give up, that doesn't fail. And Paul affirms that this is indeed the type of love they've been taught by God to have for one another and is in fact the kind of love they've been characterized by showing, not just just to their fellow Christians and believers in Thessalonica, but towards all of God's family in the whole surrounding region. It's so important that you see this, that Paul doesn't commend them for like having occasional warm feelings of affection for their brothers and sisters throughout the area, right? Like he's not like, wow, you do a really great job about thinking positively about other Christians, right? That's not what he's saying. What he's affirming is is how their actions towards one another have been characterized by selflessness and sacrificial devotion to one another's good. See, so often we tend to think about, like we define, like love is a feeling. Right? You feel that, right? That is a just total misunderstanding of what love is. Love is not an emotion. Love is an action. Right? You feel affection. You feel attraction. You, you even feel lust. You do love. Right? Did you notice how Paul ends verse 10? He says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. He doesn't tell them, hey, we want you to feel more loving towards the people around you. We want you to have like a more a sense of just like, oh, I just really I love those people. Like I really like them a lot. And he, he talks about actions. He says, we want you to demonstrate it more and more, to show it more and more. Because love is not an emotion, it's an action. Love is a verb, right? And this kind of love. It should increasingly characterize our relationships inside the family of God. Again, is a sacrificial and selfless devotion to one another's good. See, and Paul, what he doesn't say is that, that we should be sacrificially, selflessly devoted to the good of one another because we all always deserve it. Uh, he doesn't say we should do that because you can be sure it will always be reciprocated. At the end of verse 15, right, he specifically gives them commands that says, don't pay back evil for evil. Don't pay back wrong for wrong, which assumes they've been wronged by each other, right? He's not saying like, hey, love each other because it's 
all, it just works out so good and everything, it's just like everyone deserves it. Everyone's always worthy of it. Like, just, let's just do it. No, he says the reason we're to love each other is because we have been made family. We're the family of God. And we've been made his family by a God who chose to love us like that when we did not deserve it and when we did not reciprocate it. See, Jesus says it this way in John 13, a new command I give you to love one another, not how you define it, not how you feel about it. He says, love one another as I have loved you. The way that I've loved you, that's how I'm calling you to love one another. See, God's family is meant to be marked by a Christ-like devotion to the good of one another in front of our own by a prioritizing of the seeking of the good of one another. See, but there's another quality Paul goes on to describe in chapter 5 that's meant to characterize the relational culture of God's family. So, there's, so the first one's sacrificial love, but the second one I think is summed up best in verse 13. He writes it this way. He says, live at peace with each other. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time when people think about peace, uh, we tend to just kind of think about like an absence of conflict, right? Like, when people say, hey, I want peace in the world, or I want peace in my family, what, what they're, usually what they mean is like, I just want the fighting to stop. Right? I just want the warring to stop. Right? When a parent says they want peace, they're just like, children, I want you to keep your hands to yourself. Like, for the love of all that is good, you don't have to like each other, but just stop injuring each other, right? Like, let's, can we make it happen, right? See, but the word that Paul uses here for peace, it's not a word that just means the absence of conflict, it doesn't just communicate the lack of something, it communicates the presence of something. Right? The presence of positive, healthy relationships. See, God's family isn't meant to be characterized by just merely by a lack of infighting, just like by a, a, a willingness to tolerate each other. Instead, it's meant to be characterized by flourishing relationships that not only don't pay back wrong for wrong, <laughs> but like we see in verse 15, are always striving to do what is good for each other. See, that kind of a peace, like that is not a passive thing. That's not something you walk into by accident. It's not something that just happens just like by accident. It's something that requires intentional, deliberate pursuit. And what we see Paul doing in verses 12 through 15 as a whole is he's giving some instructions to the church about what it looks like to relate to one another in ways that foster that kind of relational, flourishing peace, right? And the first set of instructions we see him give is in verses 12 and 13, where Paul, he tells them, he says, to acknowledge and to highly regard the people who work hard among them, who care for them in the Lord, and who admonish them. And what we know is that based on the sentence structure, Paul is not describing three different groups of people. He's describing one group of people who, who do all three of these things. And in light of the fact that the word that's translated as care there conveys the sense of authority as well as loving concern, what's real clear is that Paul is talking about Christian leaders. He's talking about leaders in the church. And what's really important that you see is that Paul doesn't define leaders by their titles, he doesn't give a list of, of titles and offices. Instead, he, gives a, he describes what these leaders do. He says that they, they're characterized by working hard among you, 
That phrase there is one that's meant, it means to toil and strive and struggle and to grow weary, right, in the way that you work. It was a word that was used of farmers and laborers, and it, it like evokes like this sense of just people who are sweating, right, doing difficult work. And there are absolutely leaders in churches who don't work hard. There are plenty of leaders in churches who take advantage of the autonomy that ministry positions often give to just be lazy, right? There's plenty of that that happens. But godly leadership is always marked by hard work. Whether that's preparing to preach a sermon or to lead a small group, whether it's discipling people over the course of time and being a part of their lives through the ups and downs, or whether it's just modeling hospitality in your home and having people over and living in that kind of way, whether it's just like laboring consistently in prayer for people. These are all ways that leaders work hard as they seek to do the second thing Paul notes, which is to care for people in the Lord. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but preaching is actually really hard. Uh, I've preached almost 300, probably over 300 sermons now since we started River City. And what I can tell you without hesitation is that it's hard every week, right? There aren't any weeks where I'm like, oh, that was so easy. That was so great. We just didn't take any time or effort, right? They're all hard, right? It takes me a lot less time now than it used to to write one, but none of them are easy. See, and the reason why I press into the hard work of, of teaching and preaching week in and week out is not because I'm trying to impress you. It's not because like, I really want to gain some huge following. Like Every one of our like, digital platforms is like single-digit views and listens on everything, right? We're not going places here, right? Like, this, is not like, like, this is not a popularity thing, right? The reason I enter into that hard work every week and I keep pressing into it is because I really care about you. I care about you. And what I know is that understanding God's word and learning to apply it into your lives has a massively significant effect on your spiritual development. And so it's worth it because the thing that I really care about is your relationship with the Lord. And so it's worth working hard. And it's worth entering into that over and over again every week and so it's out of that kind of love and care for people that leaders do the third thing Paul notes. He, he says they admonish. And that's not a word that we use every day, kind of like Bible word, like rebuke. Like we don't, we don't use that, those words very often. But it, it's, one that, it's a word that means to correct or to discipline. It comes up again in verse 14 where it's translated as to warn someone. And it's, it's the idea of correction that it's not harsh and overbearing. It's not a way that like belittles people or just like embitters them, but it's a, a way that comes align, alongside someone in love and calls them to head in a new direction. One commentator described the tone of the word Paul uses here as big brotherly. Let me just tell you, admonishing people, correcting people, calling them out of sinful attitudes and actions and behaviors and into repentance and reconciliation and holiness, that is zero people's idea of fun. That's so unfun. It's not fun at all, right? And if it is, you're a sociopath and you should not be a leader in any, like you have much bigger problems we need to deal with, right? It's awkward and it's uncomfortable, but it is an in, like it is a deeply important part of loving people well and pointing them towards the Lord. And so it's worth doing. We see Jesus modeling that. See, leadership isn't just like affirming everything everyone's doing. It's not just being a cheerleader. It involves calling people 
into a new way of life, into a new way of thinking, into a new way of relating. And that's hard sometimes. And Paul says in verse 12, he tells the Thessalonian believers to acknowledge, to literally that means to, to see or to take note of, those who lead the church by serving people in the church in these ways. He adds in verse 13 that they're to be held in the highest regard in love. One commentator summed it up this way. He said, in your mind and in your heart, hold them dear. See, Paul's not just talking about a, a formal respect or recognition for like somebody's title or their role. He's not just saying like, oh, well, I guess Brandon's your pastor, so I guess, I guess I'm going to have to do what he says, right? Or Steph and Andy, they're my small group leaders. I guess we're just doing, like, we're going along with whatever they're doing here, right? Like Dustin led worship this morning. I guess, I'll, I guess I'm thankful. I'm glad he picked the songs he picked. I won't complain, right? Like, that, that's not what he, that's not, it's not like just like this deferral. It's about honoring your leaders by having this attitude of graciously recognizing and humbly respecting them for the ways that they lovingly serve you and care for you in the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 13, Paul, writes, or the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but he writes this way. He says, have confidence in your leaders. Submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. Because if it was a burden, that would be of no benefit to you. I just want to be clear, though. Paul is not teaching that as Christians, we should just kind of like exalt leaders to like this celebrity status, that we should just kind of follow people with this blind, unquestioned obedience. Uh, that's the definition of worship, right? Uh, worship and respect are very different things. God is the only one who is worthy of worship. And I realized that standing up here and basically saying, hey, the Bible tells you that you should respect me and the other leaders of the church is like at least a little bit awkward, right? Like we can all acknowledge there's a little bit of like uncomfortableness in that, right? See, but the good news is that just like Paul got to affirm the Thessalonians for the way they were loving one another well, right? He says in verse nine, I don't, I don't have to write anything about this. You guys know what it means to love each other and you are doing a great job. And I get to affirm and to express my own gratitude to you all in this area. Because the reality is that by and large, this type of honor and respect has overwhelmingly characterized the way that you have related, not just to Aaron and I, but to all of the leaders here at River City. See, all of the study, all the data shows that pastoral leadership burnout is at like an all-time high. There are so many pastors and leaders who are just exhausted and defeated, who are ready to throw in the towel. They just like cannot deal with one more critical comment, one more unfair comparison. But I just like need you to know like, that is not the way that the leaders at River City here feel. <laughs> like that's not the way that we feel. I remember somebody asked me once how long I thought I'd be at River City, and I just responded, it's like, someone would have to rip me away from this place. Like, somebody would have, like God would have to do a miracle, right? Like, like, I'm not leaving, right? Like, you people are not perfect, spoiler alert, I know, right? Like, you're not perfect, right? Nobody is, no church is, but the truth is that you honor the work of the leaders here. You express your gratitude and your thankfulness for it, you don't complain. You are not characterized by gossip. You receive correction humbly and graciously. You speak highly of the leaders here in your conversations with others. 
And I think I can speak for all of the leaders here when I tell you, it is a joy and a privilege to get to lead and serve you. And the truth is, not every pastor can say that about the church they've been called to lead. Let me just add this. People who are new to River City, they notice that culture in our church. They notice that culture. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had with people who are new to our church. That's one of the first things they notice. There's this like culture of graciousness and humility, of gratitude for the leadership here, and just like of contentedness. There's a lot more I could say about this, but we, we have to keep moving, right? Because there's still more stuff that we got to get to in the passage, right? And so that first set of instructions is about how congregations pursue relational peace and how they honor and respect their leaders. But what we see in verses 14 is that Paul seems to turn his attention to the ways that leaders develop and they cultivate relational peace amongst God's family through the way that they lead and serve the people they've been called to lead. Verse 14, he, he says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Right, essentially what Paul is saying is that godly leaders cultivate relational peace in God's family by recognizing that not everybody is the same. That people are different. That particular people require particular care. Right, the idle and disruptive, that was a, a type of person, it was a military term that was used to describe soldiers who were either carelessly or just like intentionally, insubordinately, just like walk out, march out of step with everyone else. And Paul says that kind of person, they need to be warned, they need to be admonished. It's the same word from earlier, that their undisciplined lives, or they're just kind of like cantankerous, like refusal to just be a part of moving forward together. That that's not just like an annoyance, but that that is a really significant problem. See, and the reality is that for leaders, people who are like that, people who just like refuse to be led, or people who just like don't want to get on the train, like it's so easy for leaders just to be like, I am done with this person, right? I just like, I'm going to ignore them or I'm going to ostracize them. Right? But Paul says, no. They need to be lovingly and yet firmly corrected. It's this idea of coming to someone, brother, sister, I love you. But this attitude, this behavior cannot continue. It has to change. And so the idle, the disruptive, they need to be warned and admonished. But the disheartened, those who are fearful or discouraged, like many of the Thessalonians may have been, maybe they were shaken by persecution and opposition, or they're grieving the loss of a fellow Christian, or as few commentators point out, they just have a really low view of themselves, as the, the word that's translated here alludes to. Like they, those people don't need a warning. They don't need somebody to come alongside and just like tell them to get their crap together. They need to be lovingly encouraged. They need to be spoken gently to. They need to be graciously reminded about what is true. Similarly, the weak, those who are suffering, those whose faith is struggling, whose hope is dwindling, Paul says they need to be helped. <laughs> The word there literally means to, means to hold on to someone. One commentator put it this way, the weak, they need to feel that they are not alone. Their brothers and sisters in Christ should hold on to them, should put their arms around them and give them the support that they require. See, the way of the world operates on this like Darwinian 
ethos, right? That the strong survive. And the way of Jesus' kingdom is that the weak are prioritized. Those who are suffering are held up and encouraged, not run over. They're seen as people who need to be lovingly cared for, not ignored and run away from. See, different people need different things. The idle, the disruptive, they need a warning. The disheartened, they need encouragement. The weak, they need help. I remember one point a few years into Planning River City how um, Aaron had kind of talked to me after a sermon that I had preached one Sunday. And, and, I, and I can't remember what that sermon was about specifically, but I remember that part of what I was talking about at the end of that sermon was about our need to like take our sin really seriously, to not minimize it and not ignore it. And I remember Aaron that week, he followed up with me and just said, you know, Brandon, some people really need to hear that. Like, you, you, you are not wrong in saying that. Some people really need to hear that. He said, but, but other people, they're sitting here this morning and they do not need to be reminded about how serious their sin is. He's like, some people are sitting here and it is a weight they feel like they can never get out from under. They don't need to be reminded about how serious it is. He said, they need to be reminded. Although their sin is incredibly serious, it has been completely paid for. I remember that just being like kind of a light bulb moment for me. And I realize some of you are here like, that was a light bulb? Like different people need different things? That seems like, like base level, you know, like that seemed, you know, all I can say, maybe I'm a slow learner, right? Like I didn't know there was such a thing as an introvert until deep into college, right? Like I just like, I had some growing to do, right? Still do, right? But I hope that you see that kind of culture in the way that, the way that we teach the Bible here at River City. Never since then, I feel like God's been graciously growing my heart with that. That's why one thing you'll notice is that when, when you notice how I often will say stuff like, some of you are here, and what you need is this. But others of you are in a different spot, and what you need is this other angle. You need this other direction to look at this thing from. See, different people, they need to be led in different ways, but what Paul goes on to say is that everyone needs patience. See, we live in a culture where patience is often seen as like a liability, right? Like you have to be the first to report on something or have an opinion about something or you are irrelevant, right? Like companies, they're constantly racing to figure out how to get us things faster and faster, right? You remember, you used to go to the movie store and pick out a physical movie, right? That took too long, so then we got red boxes on the corner of everywhere, right? That also took too long, so now you can just like download a movie in three minutes. But now it's like when your Netflix stream starts to buffer, you're like immediately texting your spouse, like, we need fiber. We have to solve this problem. Like, we, we need this. Like, this is happening. What? I don't have any more patience left. Right? I don't know about you. I don't even consider buying something if it doesn't have two-day shipping anymore, right? Like, it's just too long, right? I, 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 don't, I don't have the time for it, right? See, the problem, though, is, is that this kind of culture of impatience it often bleeds over into the way that we treat people, the way that we relate to people. See, the truth is when, when we are not doing well, what we want is for other people to be patient with us. We want them to enter into the hard things. We want them to like empathize with what's going on and, and to care for us and to be patient with us. But when you are doing well, what you tend to want, what we all tend to want is just for other people to get their crap together. Like, I'm doing fine. I don't know what their problem is. Like, let's move things along here, right? 
And yet that is not the way God calls us to care for one another. One commentator, I thought this was so helpful. He wrote this, he said, ministering to people is often difficult because people do not People do not always, I would just say rarely, right? Rarely respond, heal, or grow as fast as we think they should. But if we are to be genuinely patient with others, hear this, we must renounce the tyranny of our own agendas. It's the idea that we should not have to wait on anyone or anything is merely another form of self-centeredness. Patience values other people enough to give them room and time to fail, to learn, and to develop and mature at their own rate, rather than to expect them to do everything right now. See, the word that Paul uses to describe the kind of peace he wants people to pursue in God's family is a word that literally means to suffer long. Like patience, literally, that word means to suffer a long time with people. It communicates this steadfast endurance and this persistence in the way that we shepherd. See, what people don't need is like just like another hot take about like what they should be doing to get their stuff together. What they need is this kind of patient love. What they need is a steady love. And a kind of love that doesn't just give up at the first sign of regression kind of love that doesn't just write people off as a lost cause when they don't immediately take your advice or receive your help the first time you offer it. As someone who has served as a leader for a lot of years, I can just tell you, that is hard to do. Because people are frustrating. Right? Everyone knows that because you are that person. Right? Like, you're frustrating to other people, so I'm sure they're frustrating to you. Right? Like, it's a circle. We all help each other be frustrated with one another. Right? <laughs> Equal opportunity, right? So the reality is that the only way you become characterized by the kind of patient peace with others is when you see how relentlessly patient Jesus has been. Apostle Paul, he writes it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He's telling about his own story. He tells Timothy this. He says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the very worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. See, Paul's saying, the reason why I'm calling you to patience and the motivation and the power you have to do it is because Jesus has been immeasurably patient with you. His love for you has been relentlessly steady. And when you recognize like the beauty of that reality, when you see in spite of all of your ups and downs, in spite of all of your awkwardness, in spite of all your opposition to his help, his patience and steady love for you has been relentless. It just fuels you with the love for people that enables you to love them with like a steadiness of pace, like a consistency, like that is irrelevant of how they're responding to you. See, the only way that we're going to be able to live out our identity as members of God's family whose relationships with one another are increasingly characterized by sacrificial love and flourishing relational peace is when we continually keep coming back to Jesus. When his sacrificial love for you is beautiful. When his 
costly peacemaking with you is compelling and captivating. That's the one thing that will fuel your love for people like his. His love for you, his patience with you, that's the one thing that does it. I see, and it's his love-filled, patient peacemaking with us that we're remembering every week when we celebrate communion. The cross is the epitome of all of that. And so communion doesn't make you right with God, and it doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status with God. It doesn't, like, doesn't make you right with him. It's a chance for you to remember, to remind yourself of his love for you, his peace made for you as he shed his blood on the cross so that you might have peace with God. So the reality is, like, our, like, gospel memory is, like, goldfish level. Like, we, like, like tomorrow you will have forgotten about everything we talked about, right? See, and part of the reason why we take communion every week is because we so desperately need to be reminded. We need to remember his love for us, remember his patience with us, because that's the only way you get filled up with it for others. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, maybe you're figuring out who he is, or if being a part of his family is right for you, that you're ready for it. I just want to encourage you, like, you are so welcome here, but hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals, and he's not after going through the motions. He's after a heart that loves him, not to get something from him, but because he has loved and been patient with you. And for those of you who are here this morning, and you have known the love and patience of God, then let this morning be a reminder. Let it fill your heart with life and joy as you celebrate his body, his blood broken and shed for you. But wherever you're at this morning, I want to encourage you as we remember the gospel together by taking communion and by singing, I want to encourage you to talk with God. Some of you are here and the very first step that you need to take in responding to God's word is to actually plug yourself into a Christian community. So many Christians today either believe or just like functionally live, like being a part of God's family is just like this completely optional thing. Like if I have some spare time, sure. If I really like the people there, great. If they do worship music the way I like it, awesome, right? Like fine, I'll do it. I this idea that you don't need or it's not worth being a part of the family of God. And the reality is that both of those things are lies. You are not the whole body of Christ. You are just one part of it. And the truth is that God has designed each and every one of us to both need and be needed by one another without exception. Without exception. And to just kind of be fine with kind of doing your own thing is functionally to tell God, I really appreciate your love. I also have no interest in being a part of your family. And that sounds so arrogant when I say it out loud. I want to invite you to reject that kind of like self-focused way of thinking and relating and to instead embrace your identity as a necessary and indispensable member of God's family who has been called and commissioned to live among and to relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that proclaim his love and patience. I just, I want to just add this. Some of you are here this morning and like, it's not that you are arrogantly not putting yourself in community, but that you are afraid. 
Because you have been wounded by a lot of communities in the past. And you bear like the, the wounds of like the hurt that has come from opening yourself up to a people and to being a part of a family like that. And I just want to encourage you. Like, I can't promise you that River City will never hurt you. Because <laughs> we are all people. Like the whole end of the passage, right? Paul's like, people wrong each other. It happens. But I want to invite you. Ask God if he might help to rewrite those stories in and a part of this community. Ask him if he might help you to renew and redeem those stories and let you be a part of his family in a way that's life-giving here. See, all of us have room to grow as we think about living out his, our identity and proclaiming God's love and peace in our relationships together this morning. But I just want to invite you as we close, I want to encourage you just to ask the question, where do you need to be growing with regards to that stuff? Do you just tolerate other Christians? Right? Do you just like, fine, I'll deal with people as long as I have to, right? Or are you genuinely characterized by a selfless love and service towards them? One of the best ways to grow in love for somebody is to start to serve them. And if you do not have love for people, I'd encourage you to start there. Start finding some ways to make, to care for people. Is your love marked by seeking the good of others, even when they don't do the same for you? Or is it just when you deem them worthy of it? That's not the kind of love God's after in his family. How are you doing with living at peace in the body of Christ? Do you honor and respect your leaders? Or you just kind of have like this like angsty, grumbling, complaining attitude? Right? Do you believe that your leaders love you, that they have your best interest at heart, so that it's good and safe to follow their direction? Or do you just have kind of this, this like angsty spirit that thinks like your ideas are better and if people would just listen to you then things would go better you're always just kind of pushing back you're always just like I have a better plan I have a better idea leaders is the way that you serve people characterized by patience and by seeing everyone needs to be led a little bit different are you willing to enter in with the idle and disruptive to do the hard and awkward work of lovingly warning people instead of just ignoring or ostracizing them? Is your encouragement and help for the disheartened and the weak, is it characterized by gentleness and persistence in the ups and downs over time? Or is it a steady love? Or is it just like bursts of affection? And just in case anyone was thinking, I'm really glad only leaders have to like treat people that way. Spoiler alert, uh, almost all the commentators highlight how verse 14, Paul reiterates brothers and sisters, and essentially what he's saying is like all y'alls, right? Like this is everybody's responsibility. Right? One commentator said it this way, the existence of leaders does not relieve members of their responsibility to care for one another. That's all of us. Leaders lead that, they model that, but it's for all of us. So all of us need to be asking God to give us eyes to see and to love his family as they need. But finally, I just want to just close with this. The very last words that Paul speaks this morning in our passage, they highlight how the relational culture of sacrificial love and patient peacemaking is not intended to remain inside the family of God. He says at the end of verse 15, right, always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. See, the relational culture of God's family is always meant to spill out into the world. My prayer this week has been that we might live as God's sanctified family, 
that we might show the world the goodness of our Father and the life that comes from belonging to His family. And that we might do it in such a way that people who need it don't don't just see it from afar, but get to experience it firsthand. See, our world is so desperately in need of a family that will live out God's identity. Let's be that people in response to all that God has done for us. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you. We just humbly come this morning and we ask that you would cause the goodness of the gospel, your love and peace displayed on the cross for us to fill us with a love and peace for one another that overflows into the world around us. God, we cannot do it on our own. You have to teach us how to do it. We're thankful, Jesus, that you've given us your spirit so that we might know you and might have the power to obey you. Help us to be your people, to live as your family, and show the goodness of life belonging to you. Amen.